Hi guys, Jesse here. Almost exactly one year ago on July 7th, 2021, we released what would go on to become one of our most popular ever episodes. We called it Franklin Delano Floyd and the Tragic Life of Sharon Marshall. It is a twisting labyrinthian story of a type of betrayal so completely beyond the pale of normal human reckoning that it defies belief. But it is also unquestionably a story of the capacity that humans have to overcome the most terrible circumstances. It's not a happy story. It is at turns disgusting, horrifying, and tragic. But in the depths of its darkness, there is also inspiration to be found. This week, Netflix released their latest true crime documentary, Girl in the Picture, about Franklin Delano Floyd, but even more, as you can tell from the title, Sharon Marshall. We hope that with this episode, and with all episodes of Love Murder, what stays with you isn't the depraved actions of an abuser, but the stories and joys and light of a person who left us way too soon. In the end, Love Murder is not just a podcast about death, but about life. We hope you enjoy this re-release of Franklin Delano Floyd and the tragic life of Sharon Marshall. All right, Jesse, last week's best-selling author twist was insane. What's the story this time around? A hit-and-run accident reveals diabolical crimes and terrifying secrets that would take decades to unravel. At the heart of it all is the question of the victim's identity, and the truth will be shocking. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about depraved dads, murderous moms, and as always, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. So yeah, welcome back everyone to Love Murder. If this is your first episode, we are so happy to have you. We are. It was a thunderstorm-soaked night in Oklahoma City in April of 1990 when a car full of passengers traveling the I-35 made a horrifying discovery. A young woman was lying face down on the side of the highway, still alive but gruesomely injured and convulsing terribly. 911 was called at 12.55 a.m. and paramedics immediately whisked the woman to Presbyterian Hospital. The police were quick on the scene where they discovered scattered groceries littering the patch of the road the victim had been discovered on, a loaf of bread, two containers of milk, a box of cookies, and two bottles of Dr. Pepper. Hmm. Amidst the groceries were also a broken radio antenna, a windshield wiper, flecks of red paint suspected to be from the vehicle that hit her, and a pair of headphones and portable radio that was presumably the victim's. After interviewing the clerk at the closest mini-mart, it was confirmed that the pretty blonde had purchased the food there and then was apparently walking back to the nearby Motel 6 when she was struck from behind. The victim was in bad shape when she arrived at the hospital, mostly out of consciousness. She could only moan, Daddy, 
daddy when she came to, and then she would fade once more. It always gets me when they call for their parents. Yeah. Upon medical inspection, the young blonde was found to be in her early 20s, and the wound pander did seem to match the assumption that she had been hit by a car. The bruises to the back of her legs and buttocks and a large hematoma at the back of her head were consistent with having been struck from behind, the bumper striking her legs, and the impact forcing her to have rolled backwards over the hood and over the top and rear of the car. Oh, my God. Oh, this is just horrifying. She also had bruises and cuts and varying stages of healing, suggesting that she had been abused. Okay. And she was, like, walking on the highway? Walking on the highway at, like, midnight to buy groceries at a mini mart. It's hard to see people on highways. They're not lit the way that a street that would have pedestrians on it should be lit. And at that time of night, people aren't really paying attention. Or they're Intoxicated. Uh Exactly. The following morning, a 40-something man named Clarence Hughes came to claim the victim, saying that the woman in critical condition was his 23-year-old wife, Tanya, the mother of their two-year-old son, Michael. Big old age difference here. He claimed Tanya had left the motel for groceries shortly after midnight and he had fallen asleep. Clarence explained that his wife was an exotic dancer who occasionally went with men she met That's his quote. So it hadn't alarmed him that she hadn't returned. He did finally become alarmed when the woman at Motel 6 was like, hey, a woman was found matching your wife's description. Yeah. You need to call the hospital. So he did end up calling the police who brought him to the hospital where he made a positive ID on his comatose young bride. The man was odd, stilted, and off-putting. He seemed to have very little emotion about his partner and mother of his child being in critical condition. The first thing he did, which was super weird, was he demanded paper and a pen and he made a no visitors sign and affixed it to her hospital door. Like no visitors, including doctors and nurses or no like... like, no outside visitors, I'm guessing. Like detectives and police? I don't know exactly what he meant, but he didn't want anyone messing with his wife or finding out anything about her, apparently. The nurses had a bad feeling about the man and wondered what the angelic-faced young blonde saw in him. They seemed a most unusual couple indeed. The mystery of who this woman is, who Clarence Hughes really is, and the roadmap of trauma, torture, sexual abuse, and murder he inflicted would be nearly impossible to unravel, ultimately taking the FBI nearly 25 years to find the answers to some truly devastating, lingering questions. Whoa. Yeah, this one, you think it's one thing, and you just keep peeling the onion, and it gets crazier and crazier it's like an awesome blossom but it's a it's an unawesome it's blossom an awesome blossom yeah it's an <laughs> unawesome un- onion it is it's, it's like not a blooming onion it's a bumming onion <laughs> this is the terrible true story of franklin delano floyd a multi-generational soul annihilator also guys trigger warning this one has a lot of gritty stuff in it there's child sexual abuse and there's going to be a very small description of torture it's a rough one so if that's triggering for you sit this one out i'll try to give you a little heads up as we get into that territory so after clarence declares no visitors he makes a payphone call to passions a tulsa strip club where tanya had been working 
He connects with Connie, who's another dancer whom Tanya has grown close with. Clarence demands that Connie get Tanya's money for him. I guess she had some money at the club. Okay. But forbids Connie from visiting at the hospital. No visitors. Upon getting off the phone, Connie immediately tells the club's owner that she believes Clarence tried to kill Tanya. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So Tanya was a really hard worker. She danced seven nights a week, only taking off Thanksgiving and Christmas Day because the holidays, they were closed. Not because she was taking a day off. Yeah. Connie fumed first night she ever takes off and she ends up in the hospital. This is some bullshit. So she knows something's awry. And also... Classic Jesse Prey move. I am introducing our <laughs> primary source midway through the episode. The book I used for today's story is called A Beautiful Child by Matt Birkbeck. And I also got some more information from a medium post by Rebecca Schroeder called Secret Identities, Elaborate Lies, The Case of Franklin Delano Floyd. So he went like deep with all these people and he interviewed all the people that loved this woman, Tanya. So thank you, Mr. Birkbeck. So yeah, so Connie had hit it off with the bright and wise beyond her years, Tanya. Neither girl drank or used drugs that were so prevalent in the club. And Connie liked how Tanya read novels on slow nights. She also always seemed a cut above the usual employee of passions. And as much as Connie loved sweet Tanya, she despised her creepy, much older husband, Clarence. Whoa, those are strong words. Yeah, she really didn't like him. Clarence was controlling and abusive. Tanya worked every single night only to hand over the money to Clarence. And she was beat if she did not make $200 a night. Oh. Okay. So like if So she went to went to work and told Connie this stuff. Yes. Okay. And he was like in the parking lot. He didn't have a job. So he would drive her to work and like wait in the parking lot. So he was like her, her pimp, pimp yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yes. And and she would get like crazy panic attacks if it was like nearing the end of a slow night and, and she, she yeah. and she didn't have the money because she knew she was gonna get beat. Yeah. So Connie begged her friend to leave the terrible relationship, you know, but Tanya was really, really scared of Clarence. She was so scared that when she talked to Connie about her situation and about what it would look like to try to run away, she would literally tremble. She said that she had tried to run away twice before and both times he had found her. And he told her if she ran away again and he found her, he'd kill her. Yeah, hunt her down. And she believed it. She really did. Yeah. Despite this, Tanya had started a secret relationship with a kind college student named Kevin who had like come into the club like on like a like a boys night type of situation. Okay. And he had become completely infatuated with the super smart dancer who had aspirations beyond passions and beyond Tulsa. She was really, really bright and her dream had always been to go to college and study aerospace engineering, actually. What? Yeah. So... This is kind of a, a, a tragic circumstance that we'll dig more into how she got from a bright high school student to this place. Okay. So she falls in love with this guy who's a college student who wants to help her go back to college and is totally willing to take on her two-year-old. And they start making plans to escape. So the two-year-old is with Clarence. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, it's, it's really sad because later on we'll talk about the effects of growing up with this man on the two-year-old. Yeah. And shortly, 
hereafter he's going to go live with another family. And they said that he had paralyzing fear of like closets and small places. And basically because like, where is the kid if he's like sitting outside the club all night in the car? Yeah. He would just shut him up in a closet and lock him in a closet, lock him in a closet and leave him there all night long. It's horrifying. Mm Mm-hmm. So while she's like beginning to plan this, Connie said that she watched her depressed, downtrodden friend bloom with hope and optimism in the future. Like she's only 23. She's like, I can start over. I can have this beautiful life ahead of me. I need to escape, you know? Yeah. So when Connie heard about this so-called accident, she knew immediately that Clarence was behind it. So crazy. So crazy. So she called Kevin and the two rushed to Tanya's side. Medical personnel were happily surprised when Tanya, who was in a coma, turned her head towards Connie's voice and appeared to reach out for her hand. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the doctors had been super concerned that she might not recover from the blow to the back of her head. Okay. Because it seemed really, really bad. But the fact that when she heard Connie and then the same thing happened with Kevin. Okay. That that she was having this response. They're like, oh, my gosh, we might actually get her back. So they also, like, they allowed them to come in despite, like, the weird husband's no visitors situation. Yeah. Are you even allowed to do that? Like, with that? It was, I mean, I guess you can, you can say on behalf of your loved one, you don't want, like, people coming into their hospital room if, like, you know, there's a contentious relationship in the family or something that's going to stress the the victim out, you know? Like, I know some women who have, like, put in their birth plans that they don't want anyone allowed into their room, you know? Yeah. Which is also very different during COVID times. Nobody's getting in anywhere, but... Yeah, and I feel like different from someone who's in a coma. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like birth is supposed to be, like, it's the start of a new life and it's, you know, you should only have who you want to have there. But, yeah, if you're in a coma... You'd think that anyone who loved you wanted to sit and talk and read to you or, you know, whatever they should be allowed to. So the doctors were already concerned about Tanya's husband. They got a real bad read on him. Like, number one, the no visitor sign thing was very weird. Number two, he had removed all of her personal effects, including her clothes from the hospital. Like what? He didn't leave, like, anything there. He didn't, like, bring anything in to make her room more comfortable or anything. He, evidence? Like, yeah, evidence. He took everything yeah. with him to wow. destroy. And does the doctor, like, do they think that way, too, or are they just thinking it's weird? Their red flags are going okay. up, so they're concerned. Yeah, yeah. And number three, obviously most disconcerting, was the history of abuse written all over her battered yeah, body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given that Tanya had absolutely no broken bones, blood, or otherwise, like, road rash type of injuries— one doctor believed that the injuries might have been inflicted to resemble like her getting hit by a car, like that maybe he hit her with something to give her the hematoma. Whoa. And like then tried to make the injuries consistent. I mean, that's that's kind of a interesting way to go about murder, you know, to try to play it off. But they thought at least one doctor thought that was a possibility. Whoa. The medical staff ran interference with Clarence so Connie and Kevin were not caught visiting and called them every time Clarence left so they could, like, get the people that were really, like, coaxing Tanya out of the coma to yeah, come. Yeah, Because she was not responding to Clarence. Uh, no. No. So so they were, like, really, like, please come back. And they were staying in a hotel because, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, like, it was, it was a drive, you yeah. know? So they also encouraged Connie to share 
everything she knew about the odd couple with Oklahoma City PD, which Good. Connie did. Good. Yeah, they're like, please, like, go tell them the backstory. We'll <laughs> tell them that we think something's really fucked up yeah. about this. Yeah, could you imagine, like, as she seems like she's her best friend at work, at least. Yes. Like, so could you imagine you feeling that way about your best friend's partner and then having this happen? Like, you would not want to keep your mouth shut. No. Straight to the police. Lock that mother effer up. Yeah. Conditions improved for Tanya throughout Connie's visits, and Connie eventually returned to Tulsa to share the good news that it looked like Tanya was going to make it. However, the celebration was short-lived when Clarence told her he was taking Michael and moving. Where? Yeah, so she he's like, I'm just going to clear out. I don't want to be here anymore. And she's like, wait a minute, your wife is in a coma. So she got a really bad feeling. Her feeling was that he was going to do something to her in the hospital and already be packed up and on the run. Yeah, yeah. So she called the hospital and she's like, I am begging you, do not allow him to be alone with her. I think something's going to happen because he is clearing out and he's getting ready to go on the run. Whoa. Her fears were confirmed when she was informed of Tanya's death the next day. And she had been like on the mend. So this is her dialogue with a nurse, according to A Beautiful Child. What happened, said Connie to the nurse. She was coming along. She was supposed to come out of it. We don't know, said the nurse. Her husband visited with her last night, and then this morning her vitals were falling. There was nothing we could do. She never came out of the coma. And I don't know, like, if he could have done anything to tamper with her, but it seems like a coincidence. They don't have any other... There was no, like... um proof of anything that he had done so this is like speculative and just us not liking Clarence (laughs) this is this is all of our gut instincts going on saying something's not right here yes yes okay yeah Connie also learned that Clarence hadn't even come back to the hospital because he had been there the night before and so then they called him the next morning when she actually died And, and like when she's failing they're like she's dying now you need to come back and say your last goodbyes and he's like no when she dies just donate the organs and cremate as soon as possible oh my god didn't even come back to say goodbye to his wife oh my god um, i wonder also, how much that ha- like happens oh god that's so sad it has to just be in these weird circumstances when there's not any sort of you know he obviously is trying to get out i also think it's so important you know we're gonna go through this woman's life and it's it's very hard for her to have people close to her unfortunately for many reasons yeah. But when I think about people dying alone, I think about the importance of building a chosen family. Yeah. Because I know that not everyone is lucky enough to have a really good biological family. And like those of us, and I I count myself among the people who are very lucky to have that. We are like, it's, it's, it's good and it's great and stuff, but everyone can, can build a chosen family Yeah, and it's important to have people there for you. And think about this, like her husband isn't there for her, but her chosen family of Connie and Kevin are, you know, the guy that she was trying to make her chosen boyfriend, you know, yeah, is everyone deserves to have somebody there with them at the end. Also, she found out that he had no intention of throwing her a funeral. Or paying for a gravesite. Wow. And so she's like, oh, hell no. So Connie got JR, the owner of Passions, to pay for her funeral and gravesite. Oh, my God. I know. I mean, really, like, strip club owner with a heart of gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she informed Clarence. She's like, I don't care what you want to do, but we're throwing her a funeral and we're getting her a proper gravestone. Wow. 
Yeah. So she's still in touch with him at this time. Yes. And finally, before leaving, because of course, Connie like went straight to the hospital from Tulsa to try to like be with her and get answers. Yep. Before leaving, a nurse pulled Connie aside and told her that Michael, the two-year-old, had been filthy when he visited, scarily silent. I mean, he's two. I have a two-year-old. They're never silent. Yeah. He didn't seem to have any emotional response to his mother dying, and he reeked of urine. What? Yeah. So she was like, thank God for this nurse. I know. Thank God for Connie and this nurse. And, and like people just in general paying attention to that weird shit, which, you know, which is like something that reminds me to keep all of our heads on a swivel, especially yeah. when children are involved. Well, I was going to say, I feel like as a mom, we're always doing that. Yes. Like, like the antenna crazy. is up. Yeah. In LA, when we're walking, I'll be like, mm, there's a crazy 10 o'clock. Just keep your eye out. Let's maybe stay on the side of the street. Like things mm-hmm. that like I never used to see before yeah when it's just you it's different yeah. i also think that you notice other kids that might be in peril constantly yeah. yeah you know so she strongly suggested that connie called child services which again connie did good girl yeah. thankfully clarence had come to a conclusion that he also needed to place michael in temporary foster care while he coped with the loss of the boy's mother a wonderful longtime foster couple named Ernest and Merle Bean took him in and were shocked at the state of the boy and his Stop. obvious developmental issues. He wouldn't speak at all, like not even a little bit, like not even like baby talk. He would cry for hours, hours on end, not no matter what they did, they couldn't get him to stop. And once he was worked up, he would smash his head into the floor or walls and like rock back and forth yeah so they can report this right yes which they absolutely did and they were patient and loving and it took a lot of time but they slowly drew him out of his shell good I mean I feel like too you can still there's still yeah there's still a lot of a time to undo that damage you know yeah Connie's complaint and report of not only abuse, but her belief that Clarence killed Michael's mother persuaded the court not to release Michael back into Clarence's custody. They wanted to do a full investigation. So there's a potential that he could still get him back, but they're going to look into it. The Beans were not afraid of the challenge and couldn't help but want to help the clearly abused child. So they were delighted to keep little Michael and vowed to do everything in their power to make sure he didn't end up back with Clarence. Okay. Yeah, I guess uh, Merle was like, at the first, like the first night when he was like, would not stop crying and was like, you know, self-harming. And they have like other kids, they have biological and foster kids like in their home. She was like, oh my God, do not ask me to keep this kid because I can't, this is so much, I can't deal with it. And they just fell in love with him and they saw that he just needed like care and love of parents who loved him. And he needed like these foster siblings, you know? Mm -hmm. And they went from literally that first day being like, Please don't ask me to take keep this babe. So I will fight for this kid, you know? It's awesome. <laughs> Meanwhile, after Tanya's organs were harvested, a full autopsy was performed, and Tanya's extensive injury, both new and old, were recorded. The pathologist also noted that Tanya had had several pregnancies. Uh And there's only one kid and appeared to have been worked on by a particularly bad plastic surgeon. Oh no. Because she had highly unnatural looking breast and butt implants oh no also nobody needs that at 23 no no y'all perfect 
23 year old bodies are perfect. <laughs> You're good just the way you are. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Under cause of death, he marked closed head injury. And under manner of death, he selected homicide. Stop. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. So it was it was clear to him that somebody had tried to kill this woman. Wow. Okay. So after an excruciatingly cringy funeral in which Clarence had screamed at the well-meaning he funeral He showed goers, up? Oh, yeah. He showed up and he said... She had secrets that will never be revealed, and it would be best for all of you to just let things be. Bury her and let things be. Do you hear me? Let things be. Okay, creepy Clarence. Like, At the fuck funeral? Off. Are yeah. you serious? Connie was pissed. Why is he even there? Yeah, he then tried to cash in on an $80,000 life insurance policy he had on her. Good. And- Luck, dude. Good luck. Well, you would not believe how stupid this is. He is the biggest dummy in the entire world. Let's talk about this call he made to try to cash in on the life insurance. Please tell me you have the recording. No. (laughs) No, I wish I did. But I do have an account from Matt Birkbeck's book, A Beautiful Child. The clerk asked Clarence for his social security number, then asked him to sit tight. He returned to the phone a few minutes later, asking again for Clarence's social security number. There seems to be a problem with the number you gave me. It doesn't exist, said the clerk. Clarence apologized, saying he mixed up his numbers and gave him another number. The clerk asked Clarence to hold on, then returned a few minutes later. Sir, we seem to have a problem here. What number did I give you, said Clarence. Oh, no, I'm I'm so confused. I buried my wife today. I'm sure you can understand. Clarence gave the clerk a third nine-digit oh, number. Oh, my God. Then can't wa- keep track of his different socials that uh-huh. he's stolen? Then waited nervously, remaining on the phone a full five minutes before the clerk returned. Everything is in order, he said quickly. Clarence noticed a slight change in his voice. After hanging up the phone, Clarence packed his bags and drove out of Tulsa heading east. He knew that the final social security number given to the clerk was not for Clarence Hughes, but for a Franklin Delano Floyd. He also knew when the clerk saw the name, he would no doubt notice that Floyd was a federal fugitive on the run from the authorities since 1973 for parole violation and attempted kidnapping. Oh, my God, this motherfucker's name is Frank. It's Frank Delano, Franklin Delano Floyd. Oh, my God. It's kind of like that's got like a John Wayne Gacy thing to it. Like where in John Wayne Gacy's case, they named him John Wayne after the actor. Yeah. So clearly his parents named them after Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Of course. He's really, uh, you know, standing up to the name. He's really setting that bar low. Jeez oh Louise. If this was limbo, he'd be winning. How low can you go? How low can you go? So the insurance company notified the police who contacted the U.S. Marshal's office. It didn't take long following conversations with the Oklahoma City Police Department to realize that Floyd was probably armed and considered very dangerous. Police strongly believed, based on the coroner's report, that Floyd, a.k.a. Clarence Hughes, killed his wife ostensibly to collect her insurance money and were gathering evidence in the hopes of bringing charges forward. 
They also learned that Tanya obtained her Oklahoma driver's license using a phony birth certificate. What? So Tanya's not who she says she is either. What? Is she like underage or something? Well, it's going to be a long story, Andrea. <sighs> Sit tight. <laughs> Sit, Sit tight. <laughs> enjoy the show. <laughs> We're together for like two weeks and we're already bitching. <laughs> uh, how how we get used to this luxury, huh? Seriously, the luxury of spending every single day together. Yeah. Every single waking moment that the babies aren't sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> so when the U.S. Marshals arrive at Clarence Hughes' apartment, obviously he was already gone. On the lamb. With Clarence, a.k.a. Franklin Delano Floyd, in the wind, the Beans began proceedings to officially adopt Michael. Awesome. Yes, who, after three months, finally stopped aggressively rocking and self-harming and was showing progress. But he, he still didn't speak a word for an entire year. Yeah, but if he's if the other things are already changing, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, they were very, very pleased with his progress. And he was turning into a warm little boy. The manhunt for bail jumping and potentially murderous Floyd was ongoing, and the next question was to determine who Tanya was and where she had come from. Connie was eager to inform Tanya's family of her passing. She knew that someone as lovely and deeply good as Tanya must have someone who was missing her, so she endeavored to track them down and let them now know where she was buried. Turning to the Passion's employment application, she noted that Tanya's maiden name was Tadlock, and she was from Alabama. With the help of JR, the owner, she got 20 listings related to Tadlock in Alabama from the operator, and the two began to cold call, which is so sweet. I know, but it's also like if someone doesn't mention their family one time, there has to be a reason. Yeah, maybe they don't want their family mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and none of them came to her funeral. None of them knew well, of they, her passing. They said they, what she was afraid of. Connie was afraid of that Clarence was abusive and he had done the classic abuser technique of alienating yeah. her friends and family. Yeah. So she was afraid that this was a Clarence issue and that he had like taken her from her family yeah. and that they deserved to know that she had died and that she was. As opposed to her not wanting to be near her family. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So she was like, kind of like, I don't think this would be Tanya's yeah. choice. So JR eventually reached a woman who identified herself as Tanya's mother. He steeled himself and he told the older woman the tragic news that her daughter had passed away in a car accident the week before. Excuse me? The woman said. I'm calling to tell you that Tanya is dead, ma'am, JR repeated. The woman shocked him by replying, sir, I don't know what you're pulling or if you're just mistaken, but my daughter's been dead for 20 years. So that's the identity that she stole. Mm-hmm. Okay. She died when she was a child and only 18 months old from pneumonia. She's buried in a cemetery near me, Tanya Dawn Tadlock. So they're like, okay, what the hell? So yeah. of course they inform the police of that. Okay. Yeah. So she stole the identity of a poor dead little yes. toddler. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Who was Tanya? Yeah. The FBI tracked down Floyd in Augusta, Georgia, and he was arrested. He had been a fugitive on the run for 17 years. He contacted an attorney and told DHS that he intended to fight for custody of his son after serving his sentence for attempted kidnapping and jumping bail. The Beans were like, oh, hell no, and decided to mount a legal battle to retain custody of the clearly abused child. As part of the custody battle, Floyd is required to take a paternity test. 
Well, this is crazy. Because if Maury was on the show, he would say, Floyd, you are not the father. Which would usually bring some joy to whatever man is sitting on that couch. But <laughs> yeah, usually they instance, get jumping up and down and going, ah, ah, ah. I told you. I told you. <laughs> I told you I was not that baby's daddy. <laughs> so she's not who she says she was. He's not who he said he was two times over, maybe three times over. And now he might not even be the father of this kid who he abused. Yeah, he's definitely not the father. Wow. Yep. So at this point, Michael had been having visitation with him. Like he'd been allowed to go see him at the jail. Unreal. And uh, you're really going to do that to a two year old? Well, the beans were like, this is screwed up. Every time he's forced to see that man, he regresses regresses terribly. You cannot take him, make him see that man. But they had previously thought it was his father and his father was requesting it. So they were allowing it. And so How now, can that happen if it's clear that the father has been abusing the child? Uh, I mean, there was no like marks on his body. There was nothing that was like clear evidence. It was just a behavioral issue. And I mean, there's some situations where you can have perfectly lovely families and there's still going to be some sort of developmental or behavioral issue. You have a dude no was problem. on the run. Now he's incarcerated. Yeah. He, I mean, I think it, the beans felt the same way. They felt like something yeah. was wrong with this child, yeah. you know? So luckily, though, when this paternity test reveals that he's not actually Michael's father... Then the courts rescind all visitation and they allow the beans to continue adoption proceedings. So they're like, nobody has a claim on this kid. You want this kid, you get this kid. However, Floyd has his attorney continue to fight for custody when he is released from prison in March of 1993 after serving his 33-month sentence. How is he only serving a 33-month sentence? I have no idea what they serve for bail jumping. I think that's not a big one. I'm surprised that attempted kidnapping, also being on the run for so long, doesn't tack on any more time. Yeah, no shit. But yeah, that's less than three years. Yeah. So he gets out in March of 1993. As part of his bid to get the now five-year-old Michael back, he got a decent job as a maintenance man in an apartment complex in Oklahoma City. And he even began psychiatric counseling to prove that he was a mentally fit parent. And his whole argument doubt was it. like, <laughs> agreed, <laughs> hard doubt, hard doubt it. His whole thing was like, his fight was like, what is the definition of a parent? If he had been at the child's birth, which he was, and if he was in the child's life for that long and like technically maybe his stepfather, you know, he was, you and know. And then locking him in a closet. Yeah. But I mean, Michael only told the beans about that later I mean I'm sure it would come up if it was a real bad custody battle but I mean he was not gonna get he was not gonna get Michael but he he really kept tr- fighting so he got this job at this apartment complex as a maintenance man and his boss there described him actually as a model employee it really did kind of seem like Franklin was getting his shit together until a terrifying incident incurred on July 4th of 1994 to a woman who lived in his apartment complex. Oh. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> You're correct. As usual. As usual, you are. You are correct. Spot on. So this is Matt Bergbeck's account of what happened. 
Carrie Box is the name of the woman, spent the 4th of July holiday at a friend's house and at the end of the day decided to race her boyfriend back to their home at the Lyrewood Point Apartments. Box in her mid-20s would run the few blocks home while her boyfriend would run to their car and try to beat her to the front door. This does not seem like fun or flirty. Um, This seems like 100% something I would have done when I was training for a marathon. <laughs> I'd be like, I can beat you home just running. <laughs> I like 100% resonate with this. Guys, it's shocking. Andy and I are best, 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 best friends <laughs> because our ideas of fun are very different. <laughs> when you were saying that, I was like, how are they doing this? <laughs> yeah. So she's basically really fit and she's a good runner. And she's like, I, it was like a cute game between them. Like she liked to try to beat him home while he was driving the car. Oh, he was driving. He was driving. They're not like, like foot racing. I thought they were foot racing. Oh. You may- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he is driving and she's like, she gets her jollies off being faster than him driving the car. Okay. Yeah. Still not fun or flirty. I don't know. I think it's kind of fun. Also, when I was, um, guys, I ran the Boston marathon in, uh, <laughs> in 2009 and I can't believe it has taken me 54 episodes to bring that up because it's really good bragging point in my life. It was life. in the last mile. The Andy was right there last mile on the bridge going you got this. You got this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but when I was like actually running a lot and super fit I would have thought this was extraordinarily fun. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay so anyway she does win. She beats him home. But upon entering her apartment, she saw a man standing in her bedroom rummaging through her dresser drawers. Um, what? Can you even imagine? No. He held a pair of Box's panties in (gasps) one hand close to his nose. Ew! And a knife in the other hand. He saw her standing there, ran toward her, and knocked her to the floor. As Box tried to fight him off, her arms made contact with a knife, producing deep gashes. The man punched her in the eye, then reached for her panties, saying, your boyfriend paid me to do this. Huh? He had not. He had not. Spoiler alert. He had not. Box continued to fight, fearing for her life. Her boyfriend arrived and tried to pin the man down, but he managed to run out the door. The boyfriend followed, tracked him down, and held him until the police arrived. Good boy. Yeah, so Gary Holman is his parole officer. So he returned from a festive 4th of July holiday to learn that Franklin Floyd had been arrested and charged with aggravated assault for his attack on Carrie Box. Floyd's position as a maintenance man required that he have master keys to all of the apartments. Ew. Oh, my God. I wonder how much, how often that happened. He was actually doing that. Yeah. And Floyd used his key to let himself into Box's apartment. Police found a pair of panties in his back pocket. Also, like, he was pulling the panties out of the drawer. Yeah, they're not going to smell. No, they're going to smell like detergent. You, you got to swipe. Hey, if you're going to be gross, get over to the hamper. Yeah. Creeper. Creep. Dumb creeper. Dumb. He's a really dumb creeper. Dumb creeper. Mm-hmm. What's worse than a creeper? A dumb, dumb creeper. creeper. Actually, maybe they're better, though, because they don't get away with creeping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we want more dumb creepers so they get caught. <laughs> So Holman knew, despite Floyd's talk to the contrary, that he was dangerous. This is his parole officer. He now believed that Floyd was pure evil, even after listening to Floyd scream during a meeting at the county jail. It's a bum rap. I was framed, yelled Floyd. You were framed? Changing your identity three times and 
creeping in some young woman's room, smelling her panties. Who put the panties in your pocket, sir? Did somebody shove them down there? The police you planted always them? You travel with a knife in your pocket? Yeah. So his parole officer returned to his office and he told his bosses that under no circumstances was Floyd to be freed on bail and parole officials had to find some creative loophole to keep him there. Why? Why? Why would you let him out? Exactly. After everything he's done. And he's clearly a flight risk. You have to be creative to keep him locked mm-hmm. up. But his parole could not be revoked until the assault charge was adjudicated. And that was not going to happen anytime soon. Mac Martin made an appearance before the Oklahoma County District Judge. And to Homan's disbelief, Floyd was released on $7,000 bail. Uh, excuse me? He returned to the Oklahoma halfway house and his activity was dramatically curtailed. Floyd was fired from the apartment complex and found a job as a painter. He was allowed to leave the home in the mornings to go to work, but ordered to return at the end of his day. On the heels of his arrest, the state court scheduled the evidentiary hearing for September 23rd and would deliver its decision on Floyd's bid to regain custody of Michael. Floyd knew that if he was found guilty of the assault charge, he'd have no chance at ever receiving custody of Michael. Desperate and obsessed with the boy he called his own, Floyd decided to take matters into his own hands. By September 12th, 1994, Michael was a happy and thriving six-year-old boy who had improved. Oh, this is going to make me so mad. Fox with him. You're going to get so mad. It was an ordinary day when the little guy got up, got dressed, ate his breakfast, brushed his teeth with the help of Merle Bean, and went to his first grade class at Indian Meridian Elementary School in Choctaw. Completely ordinary until Franklin Delano Floyd took the principal hostage at gunpoint and forced him to aid in the abduction of little Michael. Um, what? Yeah, so basically... He goes into the school office with a gun and he has it hidden at first. And then he said he wanted to speak to the principal. How old is this dude at this time? Uh, He's in his, God, late 40s at this point. Yeah. And he, you know, waits outside and then the guy's like, okay, you can come in and talk to me. And he's like, shows him the gun. He's got it like in his jacket. And he's like, tell me who the first grade teachers are. And so he, like, I guess knew who Michael's first grade teacher was. He, like, knew the name of her. So when he's like, that one, he's like, okay, we're going to go take a walk. And we're going to go to Mrs. So-and-so's classroom. And I'm going to be right there with you. And you're going to peek your head in. And you're going to say, I need to see Michael now. I have got to pull him out of class. Oh, my God. And, of course, the guy was terrified. So he did it. I hope in most schools now they have, like, emergency buttons. 100% I think they do. Okay. I think that obviously this is 90s, right? 94. So yeah. this is a totally different time. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't even know if like I went to a really small high school. I don't know if they would have emergency things set up like this. But I also think, though, I'm, I'm surprised that like the school secretary wouldn't notice or somebody oh, else wouldn't uh, notice. That's so weird. Like some random guy pulling the principal out of his office. Yeah. So they go for a walk together. They go get Michael. And I don't actually know like what Michael's response was. He seemed to just go with it as well. He obviously recognized him. And he's like, okay, now we're going to go and get into your car. You're going to peek your head in and tell the secretary that you're taking a walk that you need to get some air. And then we're going to go out and they get into the principal's car. He had a white pickup truck. 
So they drive about a mile and a half away to where there's like a campsite and it's clear to the principal that he's been like camping out wherever this like place in the woods is a mile and a half away from the elementary school. Okay. And he leaves Michael in the truck and he takes the principal out like even further into the woods and he handcuffs him to a tree. Okay. And then he leaves. Okay. He didn't shoot him. He did not shoot him. So the guy just like basically screamed for like two hours until somebody heard him and he was released. Oh my God. Terrifying. Can you imagine being handcuffed to a tree and you don't know if anyone's going to find you ever? No. No. But also like you're a principal of a school of young children. Like you have to be dreading what is happening to the little boy. Oh my God. Poor Michael. And this is profoundly devastating situation because he was finally happy. Yeah. He had had parents and he had siblings and he had a community that loved him and was all like binding together to help him. And this motherfucker comes out of the blue and rips that happy life away from him. So now that he's on the run with Michael, let's talk about the backstory of this complete dirtbag and maybe discover the true identity of sweet Tanya. Franklin Delano Floyd was born the youngest of five kids in Barnesville, Georgia, to a career alcoholic father who routinely beat his wife and kids and eventually succumbed to liver and kidney failure and died at age 32. Oh, what? You got to drink a lot to completely kick your liver at 32. Whoa. Yeah. Well, usually the death of an abusive asshole is a good thing, but Floyd's mother could no longer support her children without her husband's salary, and she dumped the kids in an orphanage when Floyd was only two. Wow. I don't think that she really was the best mom either. I This was an unfortunate situation, absolutely, with her husband. Yeah. But based on some stuff that happens later, it seems like, shh, I don't know how they, how or why they had all those kids. I guess no birth control back then. So that's why. Yeah. Because it didn't seem like either parent was especially parental. This orphanage was horrifying. The children were frequently beat with belts as punishment. And once when a preteen Floyd was caught masturbating, his hand was placed in a pot of boiling hot water. What? As a punishment for touching a stick. Okay. So boys aren't supposed to masturbate. Yeah, that's going to create some problems. Uh, Yeah, no shit. And it did because Floyd claims he was raped by a group of boys when he was only six years old. What do you expect? (sighs) It's just devastating. Oh, my God. That is horrid. One by one, his older siblings left the home, and eventually Franklin was kicked out at the age of 15 and sent to live with his older sister Dorothy and her family. Dorothy's husband knew something was not right with Franklin, and he didn't want him around his kids. Super smart. Yeah, I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. So thank goodness he had a good gut instinct. So he sent him packing after only a couple weeks. Floyd then tracked down his mother in Indiana, who was now working as a sex worker and was unable or uninterested in housing or caring for her youngest child. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, she was just like, I'm, I dropped you off at an orphanage. Why are you here? I don't yeah. want anything to do with you. Floyd convinced her to forge papers saying that he was over 18 so he could join the military, but he was kicked out six months later when they discovered the forgery. Yeah. He went back to Indiana to find his mother, but she had disappeared. I was going to say, I'm shocked that he tracked her down the first time. Yeah, she was gone when he went back to the same place where she had been. 
Thus began his drifting and criminal career. He was arrested in 1960 after breaking into a Sears store and was actually shot by the police in the stomach while being apprehended. Why? Well, I thought that was like the worst place that you can get shot. He survived the surgery. I mean, he had to have Whoa. immediate surgery and he survived it. And he was sent to a juvenile delinquent hall where he remained until August 1961. Okay. In November of 1961, he was back in jail for violating his parole. And in June of 1962, he committed his most horrifying, disgusting crime yet. How old is he now? 19. So he's 19 years old. And he kidnapped a four-year-old girl from a bowling alley and sexually assaulted her. Oh, my God. Guys, this is uh, one of the trigger warnings, like, go forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear about this. A physical examination showed semen stains on the child as well as bite marks on and around her vagina. And she's four. Four years old. That's like... Because how old was he when he said he got raped? Six. He was six? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, this is not a shocker. No. This is not at all a shocker. Uh, It's just, it's devastating. Devastating and horrifying and sickening and sad and scary. Like, I mean, we need to do better for our children and for victims of sexual assault, especially minor ones. Getting there, you know, even just like our knowledge of patterns and, you know, cyclical behaviors and you know, how that all works. The fact that we're even talking about that is so far ahead of where they were We've in been. the 1960s and 70s. Oh, yeah. This, you know, like, oh, my God, it's just it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. And this is this is the problem. I mean, we'll, we're going to get into very shortly. We're going to get into also his prison experience, which also is not helpful. So he was caught and sentenced to oh 10 to 20 years in jail for child molestation. A couple months later, he was remanded to a mental hospital for psychiatric testing, which obviously he needs. And he managed to escape and then went on to rob a bank and was caught again and sentenced to 15 more years for the robbery. And he was then sent to federal prison in Chillicothe, Ohio. Chillicothe. Chillicothe. You You told me. That one, yeah. The first time we did that, we did a story in Chillicothe. 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 There you go. Yeah. And Andy had Andy, our our Midwestern girl. Andy's our everything girl. I'm like, if it's Midwestern, it's Andy. If it's California, it's Andy. If it's Boston, it's Andy. Andy's been around the country. (laughs) Chillicothe. There we go. Two months later, he even attempted to escape with two other inmates by hotwiring a prison truck and crashing it through a fence. What? Yeah. Didn't think this one through, though, because when they crashed it through the fence, it damaged the truck to the point that it couldn't run anymore. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't get very far at all. And they just they, got to the fence. Yeah. And they got <laughs> recaptured and it added five years to his sentence. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I can understand, though, why he wanted to get out of jail so badly, because as we all know, people in prison do not look kindly on pedophiles. Yeah. Well, that was what I was... Just going to say, first of all, the fact that he only has 10 to 20 years for raping a four-year-old girl and there's people in jail for possession of marijuana. Insane. Literally makes me want to gouge my own eyes out. Like, it's, it's this is absolutely just, broken. And I don't even smoke weed, but the fact that marijuana is legal in however many and states And they now, still haven't freed people I know. who are in and jail. this motherfucker yeah. bit around some poor little baby girl's vagina 
who is now traumatized and got for life. 10 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. When you do that to a child, you're essentially killing the child which in is, some way. Which is why I love the in prison that kind of divide. Yes. Well, what it's almost like a caste system. <laughs> In, yeah, in prison 100%. where they are essentially like they don't they like gash your face if you are a pedophile. That's I what, mean, they they did I, they did a lot to this guy. Yeah, when so, he was in jail. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, in the prison culture, if something if you do something to a child, then they ident they mark you. Yeah, so that you're identifiable to the other to the inmates. other inmates. Yeah, and you know, to be honest, I normally am like. Good. You do that to a kid, you deserve it to be done to you. But at the same time, they're going to let him out. He's only getting 10 to 20 years. He's only like, at Which this is point, 19, reason, 20. I think why they mark them so that when they're out, they even know. Well, he didn't get marked on his face at least, but he got raped and beaten near constantly to the point where he tried to commit suicide. He wanted to get to the top of the jail so he could jump off the roof because he was getting beat and raped so routinely. And he eventually ended up submitting to a daddy in order to survive. Yeah. So he still had to do but sexual. Was protected. But he was protected yeah. at least. So yeah, that's not going to like make a better human. No. That's not rehabilitation. No. I mean, no. Come yeah. On. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, man. He was eventually let out of prison in November of 1972. That's 10 years. I was just going to say 10 mm -hmm. years later. Wow. They he, really didn't <laughs> have any interest in keeping him for longer. No. So he's let out and he was paroled to a halfway house where he remained until January 27th, 1973, when he attempted to kidnap a woman at a gas station. How old was she? She was like in her early 20s as well. Okay. Wow. Thankfully, she fought him off, managed to escape, and was able to alert the authorities. I mean, could you imagine? Um, fight with everything oh you got. Same. Gouge their eyes, <sighs> like bite Spray their them dick with gas, off. Whatever. Yeah. Cut them. Whatever you have to do, just fight. It's so crazy because, like, I grew up in the suburbs always, like the suburbs of Chicago, though. And so I remember my dad teaching me to always have my keys in my hand between my knuckles. Yeah. And just, like, when I was walking in the car, always have my keys. And, like, that – there's so many instances and stories where I'm always like, man, if you have your keys, just pop them. I know. Pop them with fucking And keys. I think the other thing that I always have to remember and I want to tell our kids – you got to get out of the car. Yeah. You do whatever you can. Like if you're like, if they're like, get in the car, I have a gun. You you don't do like what you're told because they, if they get you in a car and take you to another location, they're going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. You've said that before. I think yeah. in the episode with them. Um, oh, the sex slave murderers. Yeah. When they're like. That was episode 10. Yeah. Leaving wow, the party. So long ago. That was episode 10. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. So long ago. It doesn't feel that long ago. No. Uh yeah. Okay. So she did fight him off and Floyd is arrested for the attempted kidnapping, but managed to post the $3,000 bond and jumped bail, never showing up for his June 11th trial. This is the one he's on the, the run from. So <laughs> this is the occurrence where they then lose him for but it was 17 only $10, years. $10,000? was $3,000. $3,000? Is it? Yeah. After, after what happened with the four-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after that, he is in the wind for the next 17 years with not so much as a hit on his record. 
until the dumbass used his real social security number to cash in on his dead wife's life insurance policy. Oh, he's not good with numbers. No. He's not good with numbers. <laughs> no. He doesn't know. No. So all of this is what the cops know. So this is the stuff that they have under his actual name, right? Yeah. But they don't know what happened in those mystery years. They don't know where he is currently with yeah. Michael. And he also can't cash out on that money. He, he's on the run with no money. Yeah. They also don't know who the hell Tanya really is. So immediately the FBI is involved because they're like, we got a real problem here. And naturally, there are very real fears for Michael's life. First of all, Floyd is a convicted child rapist. So there's that. But there's also some hope that the child meant so much to him that he might keep him alive, mm, you know? Yeah. But the FBI basically is like, even if he does love the child, at some point his fear of getting caught is going to outweigh his love of the child. So they're like, even if he is alive right now, he's going to be dead in seven to ten days. So we got to get cooking. Whoa. Yeah. I love that they just go straight to the FBI. Yeah, because they were like, this is over our heads. Yeah. We need we need help here. Yeah, that makes me happy that they. Yeah, they don't get into like some jurisdictional yeah. dick show. Yeah. Yeah. Jurisdictional dick show. <laughs> Jurisdictional <laughs> dick show. Jurisdiction show. That's going to be our next podcast, guys. Jurisdictionshow.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they're definitely working every angle to get into this mystery and figure out where he's been, where he might be going, what could predict his behavior to profile. Like, they're doing the whole thing. Okay. So they discover that he first went by an alias of Trenton Davis and lived in Oklahoma City from 1975 to 1978. And then he went by the name Warren Marshall in Louisville, Kentucky, Atlanta, Phoenix, and Tampa from 1980 to 1988. Then, of course, he turned up in Tulsa as Clarence Hughes and with a new wife, Tanya, whom he presumably killed. So now having tracked his general whereabouts for those lost years, they send out bulletins to the FBI offices in those areas okay. to interview anyone who knew him back with whatever name he was using at that point and attempt to discover like what his patterns are, where he like learn about his past to predict his future, essentially. Okay. One week into the search, they connect with an ex-colleague who not only knew and remembered Floyd as Trenton Davis, he even had a photo of the man during that era. Whoa. The man turned over a wallet-sized photo of Floyd posing for a studio photo with a blonde little girl. The old co-worker said that the little girl was Floyd's daughter, Suzanne, she looked about five or six years old, and she was unsmiling, clearly unhappy. Oh, I know where this is going. Uh-huh. The field agent sent it to Special Agent Fitzpatrick, the lead on the case, and his jaw dropped as he compared it to the other photos of Floyd, his wife, Tanya, and her son, Michael. Oh, my God, he shouted. He kidnapped her, too. Oh, my God. Tanya Dawn Tadlock Hughes was little Suzanne Davis. Oh, my God. So this monster kidnapped a little girl, sexually assaulted her and sexually trafficked her her entire life, murdered her and then impregnated her and kidnapped her son. Whoa. 
Isn't that insane? He's like the ultimate evil. That's why I call him a multi-generational soul annihilator. Yep. Uh, because he took any form of happiness from three generations. The only thing that could make this worse is if it was his daughter, which was what I thought for a second. Yeah, it was not his daughter. Thank God. Yeah, and Michael is technically not his biological son. So she got pregnant from someone else while he was trafficking her. Wow, what a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. So after finding... Michael, that's their number one priority. The number two priority is now uncovering Suzanne slash Tanya's real identity. So they go back and they're now looking for Suzanne as a child. So she was then a child and associated with, of course, Trenton Davis and discovered that the pair fled Oklahoma City in 1978 when a babysitter accused Floyd of sexually molesting Suzanne. And where did he get her? That's this remains a huge unsolved mystery about this case. Like no family was missing their baby girl? So luckily there's been an update. So I will have an update okay. for you at the end of the okay. episode. But while they're working this case, they are desperately trying to figure out who this girl's family, real family is. Whoa. So, and they they know that he's not actually her father because they have the DNA from the paternity test. Yeah. There would have been a familial link if... Michael was absolutely Tanya's son. Yeah. And there was no genetic to him, to to Clarence, you know. So after the babysitter tried to turn him in for sexually assaulting his own daughter, they turned up in Louisville in 1980 as Warren and Sharon Marshall. And so I'm going to call her mostly Sharon going forward because that's what she was called for most of her life.